You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. We're going to be in Acts today, and we're continuing our series on what is the church Now, this is the question that we're trying to answer the whole summer long. If you've been following along with us, you kind of know where we've been. We spent the first three weeks looking at the big puzzle picture of what is the church. We looked at the Nicene Creed, and we saw that the church is one, it is holy, it is universal, or a little C Catholic and apostolic. And then we turn to see how America sells us the church, because that's always going to be the tug that we're running against um, that's trying to pull us to do church the way that they do it. And America sells us the church as a divine commodity. It is something that is there when you need it, and it's more about what you can get from the church than the community in which you live as the church. And then we jumped into Acts 2, and we saw how the early church was modeled to believers. And honestly, we could spend pretty much the whole sermon series in Acts 2, but we're not going to do that. Even though we're going back there today, we're going to be in Acts 2.38 as our springboard, if you want to cheat ahead a little bit. Last week, we began to not just look at the puzzle piece of what is the church as a whole, but we began to pull out individual pieces of the puzzle so that we could better examine them and understand it. And last week, the title of the sermon was called A Fellowship of Difference. I meant to last week. I didn't, and I apologize. <coughs> the, the title, Fellowship of Difference, is taken by, from a book from Pastor Scott Sauls, who wrote a book with the same title. And while the sermon wasn't taken from there, the book was a pivotal launch point as I ran with the subject. And last week, as we looked at a fellowship difference and linked it with the Lord's Supper, I hope it did two things for you. The first is that you would begin to see each other the way God sees you. That was one of the hopes. I'm going to never use that font and color again. It'll be a little hard to see. The computer screen is so much different. I apologize. And two, that the Lord's table would not only have a vertical dimension, which it does. It's our reminder of what God has done to us through Jesus. And now we have a relationship with the Father as we're in union by the Spirit. There is a vertical relationship. But the Fellowship of Difference, the communion table also gives us a horizontal relationship. We're to see one another as we take communion together. It's why communion is directed to be taken in community. Notice how those words are so close. So what is the church? We answered some of that last week. The church is a fellowship of difference who make much of Jesus, who invite our neighbors to the table, communion. Today we're going to look at another aspect of the church. We're going to take a look at baptism. Because it's concretely linked to salvation, to our relationship with God. Many times as you examine baptism within Scripture, it is essentially used as a synonym with salvation. For baptism is an outward sign of an inward change that has taken place in our hearts. It's the visible link between the Lord we serve, where we have placed our faith, As the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, 5, one Lord, one faith, 
on baptism. Now, we mentioned it in week one. We mentioned it in week one. We come from two different churches. And while both these churches were two missionary churches that joined together, we know that there is a rich history of the Presbyterian church within one of them. We find First Presbyterian Church stuff in our closets every week. More stuff. It's always there. And one of the main differences between our denominations is the mode and theology of baptism. And if you're like me, many of you are like me, you are baptized as an infant. I don't shy away from theology. You shouldn't either, and I'm not going to treat you like a kid. Um, I think you all are very smart. The term for infant baptism that I'm going to use moving forward is called paedo-baptism. Everyone say paedo. Paedo. Everyone say baptism. Baptism. Okay? Look, you're all theologians. You're You're all rich theologians. Okay? And the reason I want us to learn that term is that's just the term that's used in all the literature that's used on it. There have literally been acres and acres of forests that have been sacrificed for the baptism debate. Um, and we're going to look at that today. So paedobaptism is the term used for infant baptism. So what is paedobaptism? Paedobaptism is this, baptizing infants as a sign of the covenant promise of redemption towards children of believers. Now, many of you know my history. It wasn't long ago that I preached whole, sermon, uh, whole sermons on this topic as someone who practiced paedobaptism. Three of my children have been baptized. The other position, which many of you are aware of, is referred to as credo-baptism. Everyone say credo. Everyone say baptism. Look at that. I mean, this is theology, y'all. This is rich. It's wonderful. Credo-baptism. Baptizing men and women who have made a clear profession of faith. That's the two positions, or the two we're going to examine today. Today, I am not going to do a class on the two positions. That can be for another time. Further, if you have questions regarding baptism, I suggest you put them in our question box at the helm, or what I'm referring to as the helm. It's our information table. What used to be a prayer box is now a prayer and sermon question box. Every two months, we're going to have a luncheon after church. It'll be a pack-your-own-bag, brown-bag lunch. And if you have questions regarding any sermon, pop them in the box, and I will do my best to answer them at that time. It'll be a good follow-up, I hopefully, for you. First one will be in August. However, I want today, my goal is to paint a picture of what baptism is. My goal for today is to show you the beauty of baptism. It's to show you the beauty of baptism. In the process of doing so, I hope to give you a reason for why we practice it and urge you to consider baptism if you've not done so. If you are not already there, because I let you cheat beforehand, turn to Acts 2.38. It's just one verse today. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Pray with me. Father God, as we look at this topic today, may we see the story, the picture 
that is put in place, the image of salvation you have given us. And may we see the beauty of your rescue story to us in the midst of it. In your son's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are certain pictures that stick with you. Maybe it's because I'm a beach bum. But growing up in Florida, um, I grew up in the 90s. We were right in the midst of the Save the Dolphins campaign against the tuna companies. Like that was preached in our classrooms, right? Saving the manatees was a big deal because we saw manatees on the river, right? Ocean life was important because I was three miles from the ocean. My, my elementary school was actually closer. It was only about a mile away from the beach. And we loved the beach. The reason we loved sea life is because most beach bums wish we were sea life. We wanted to live in the ocean and we wanted to live on the beach and do nothing else than that. Well, of course, one of the things that happens in the Gulf of Mexico from time to time is oil spills. And I remember seeing a picture very similar to this in the newspaper as a child, and it gutted me. If you don't know what this is, this is a pelican. And pelicans are beautiful creatures, beautiful creatures. They might be funny looking, but they're beautiful to watch. They're huge. Most people don't realize that. They are massive. They are as big as most of your kids. They stand four feet tall and have a nine-foot wingspan. They are, I remember as a child being terrified as as a pelican because they could look you in the eye, okay? Um, And they soar through the air. Huge nine-foot wingspan, right? I mean, you see that shadow fly over you on the beach. You're a little terrified. You think it's a dragon. And they have that massive built-in net slash beak, right? It's massive. And they rest upon the water. But when an oil spill happens, their lives change drastically. If they land on the water after an oil spill, they are doomed. They're absolutely doomed. The once... Snow white feathers are quickly covered with an obscene amount of oil that they can no longer take off from the water. They're incapacitated. And if they're lucky, they landed in the water close enough to shore and the waves will bring them in. But if they've tried to wipe it off by ducking their heads under the water, they've actually doomed themselves even more because the oil covers their head and gets into their eyes. And while this one has his eyes open, I can promise you it hurts. But many of them become blind in the process because it's just easier to keep them closed. So they're incapacitated, they're blind, and they're in an immense amount of pain. You can't imagine trying to get an oil out of a beak that big. They can't get it out. And um, they are relatively mean creatures regularly. You approach a pelican, it might fly away or it might charge you. But when the rescuers find them after an oil spill, they don't put up much of a fight because there's not much left in them. They're exhausted. And many of them have given up on life. 
They're in need. Need of what? Specifically to be made clean. They need to be washed. They need to be essentially made new, made whole. Some of you see where this might be leading with a baptism sermon. Historically, the marks of the church have been threefold. They've been preaching of the word and keeping of the sacraments. That's the marks of the church. Of, the, of which there are two uh, sacraments commanded in Scripture. So here are the three things. The first, the word of God is to be preached. There is a humble reliance on the teaching of sacred Scripture. We hold Scripture to not only be true, but to be beautiful. We hold Scripture to be rich and close to us. And when a church abandons this principle, they're no longer the church. The Word of God must be spoken. That's one of the marks of a church. Second mark of the church is the sacraments must be observed. All churches, from Eastern Orthodox to Catholic to Protestant to Evangelical, practice the sacraments of the Lord's table and baptism. Why? Because they're commanded in Scripture. It's one of the things that makes them a church. And third, the sacraments must be properly understood. I'll give you an example. Last week we celebrated the Lord's table. If you no longer believe in the atonement, which is Christ's sacrificial death on the cross to cover our sins, then the blood of Christ being poured out at the table is meaningless. So that's what I mean by sacraments must be properly understood. Because if you don't understand them properly, then what are they a reflection of? Of tradition or scripture? So between the Word of God and, and sacraments, this is what I love. I, you know this. I'm a theater major. I love image. I love the beauty of the imagery that the Lord gives us both in creation and he, how he lets us reflect it. But God is a God of image too. If the Word of God being spoken gives us an audible picture of God's love and affection for us, then the sacraments must be understood as the visual picture of God's love and affection for us. Again, I'll say that again. If the word of God being spoken gives us an audible picture of God's love and affection for us, then sacraments must be understood as the visual picture of God's love and affection for us. Last week, I asked your children to come back into service so they could see the Lord's table. Why did I do that? Because I wanted them to see the picture. It is the body of Christ broken for you. It is the blood of Christ shed for many. I, I love the Lord's table. I love communion because it's a tangible picture of God's love and affection for me. Like the picture of the pelican, that's an image that sticks with me. The Lord's table communion is also a picture that sticks with me. And my prayer is that baptism becomes a similar picture for you. And I want to describe that picture to you today. In a few weeks, we hope to hold a baptism service. And my hope is that we as a church family get to marvel at the glory of God as we witness a picture of his love and affection towards his people. You see, baptism is a beautiful picture 
of the gospel story. John MacArthur gives a clear summation of what baptism is. These are his words edited for some summation. He says this, Water immersion is a picture. It's a symbol and an object lesson of a spiritual analogy of a spiritual truth. It is the way that God has designed to teach the truth of personal salvation. What does it symbolize? Unmistakably, throughout the New Testament, Christian baptism is presented as a picture of the central spiritual truth of salvation, which is this. One who was a sinner now is in Christ, is now in Christ. I am crucified with Christ. It is not I who no longer live, but Christ who lives within me. I don't know where I end and Jesus begins. We are so immersed. I am united to him in his death and resurrection. Romans 6 unmistakably says this. Well, what does Romans 6 say? Let me put it up on the screen for you. And it's so small a font and so hard to see on the screen that let me say it to you too. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And this is the same thought. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. Romans 6 is not talking about a water rite, but a spiritual reality in which God places us into Christ. That we die in Him and we rise to newness of life. This is Galatians 3. This is Colossians 2. To be placed into union with Christ, that is the baptism that saves, that's talked about in 1 Peter 3.21. Immersion into water is the inseparable outward sign of a spiritual union. It is the only spiritual sign that so clearly dictates the death, burial, and resurrection that Christ has given us in Him. And in Romans 6. And it gives us the salvation story. It is the picture of the salvation story. Let me give it to you. Human beings were made in the image of God. We are God's image bearers. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that we look like God. But it means that we were made without sin. And without sin, we had a working, beautiful intimate relationship with our creator, Lord, and God. So much so, so much so that we would call him Father. Think about that. Like the pelican soaring in the sky, we did what we were created for, namely to be in relationship with God. But sin entered the picture by our own doing And it is far worse than a pelican and an oil slick. While, yes, both are dirty. Both can no longer do what they were created to do. For mankind, the intimacy with God was no longer available. For the bird, flight is impossible. Further, we're both blind. 
while we are quick to see the wrong things that everyone else does around us, we are typically the last people to see our own sin and to see the consequences for them. We are so, think about it, we are so used to living in sin that we cannot imagine life without it. When I think of the new heavens and the new earth to come, I cannot imagine the way that I will approach it because I have never once in my life been free from the stain of sin. The oil is on this body. And I cannot imagine what it's like to soar in the sky. We can't. Some of us are so used to lying that our cons- like our conscience is no longer pricked when we do. Even though we're angry, right? When we catch someone else in a lie. Some of us are so used to being angry and bitter. And some of it justly. Because life's not easy. It's hard. But when the small things go wrong because we've trained ourselves to be angry and bitter, that becomes our natural response. Some of us are so used to lust. Porn is no longer just a habit. It might as well be called a hobby. And we don't think twice about what is happening with those men and women on the other side of the screen, what they're really experiencing. And we are blind to the damage that it does our own body and soul. Some of us are so used to coarse language that our tongue naturally flows to those words. You ever notice that? You get into a habit. Why does that become the natural outpouring of my tongue? And then we justify the language based on our circumstance. If you're like me, some of us are so used to judging others. To try to find the moral high ground with our political, religious, and cultural opponents. That there is no way we can love our enemy because we place those people in a category of unreachable or untouchable. And then some of us are just so broken. We see ourselves as worthless and ruined. As someone trapped in the oil spill of sin of others that we've just given up because it feels like the world's given up on us. As a messenger of Jesus, I am here to tell you that no matter what muck you are in, no matter what sin you are shackled to, no matter what sin you are blind to, no matter what trauma you have been through, you are offered new life. You are offered a way to be made clean. Repent and believe the gospel. Your sin need no longer define you. God has every right. God had every right to abandon his image bearers after they abandoned and rebelled against him. But God did not. Instead, he pursued his people. He came as a man, the God-man Jesus, to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death. And he, as he died, the wrath of God that was meant for you and me was poured out on him. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeem us from the curse of the law by what? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who ha- is hanged on a tree. And now we are made new. 
We are baptized into Christ. And whatever label we had before now is different. While, yes, we are a fellowship of difference, it is no longer our differences that divide us, but it is our union with Christ that unites us. It's who we're joined to. Galatians 3, 27 through 29. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You hear the echo from last week, same author. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For all are one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Are you an heir according to the promise? Are you an heir according to the promise? Have you repented of your sin and believed the gospel? Mark 1.15 The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Do you believe the good news? That Christ died for you? Will you follow him? This is the salvation story within baptism. When we baptize, it is in response to the word picture that God has given us audibly. And we play it out visually. We enter the water in need of being made clean. We proclaim that we believe the gospel. Baptism is also a public proclamation of that fact. And then we're buried with Christ in baptism. We are submerged under the water. Believe it or not, if you hold someone under the water long enough, they dead. And we're raised with Christ out of the water. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory to the glory of the Father. And then what are we made to do? We're called to walk in newness of life. Back home after an oil spill, it would be a big deal. They, all the rescue workers, everyone who was at um, the laboratory cleaning, the pelicans, they would all meet in the beach. There'd be, all, there'd be hundreds of people there, television crews, and they would release the pelicans back into the wild. And there was a lot of hooting and hollering. And when 3,000 people got baptized in Acts 2, I can imagine the scene down at the river that day was not quiet. There was a lot of hooting and hollering and joy because there was a lot of hooting and hollering in heaven. Luke 15:10, I love this. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So what now? What now? If that is the story of baptism, and that is that, if that is the picture that God gives us within Scripture of a true reality spoken from His Word, here are some four questions I have for you. First, if you have not been baptized, what is keeping you? If you've not been baptized, what is keeping you? Is it pride? As the great theologian Elsa from the Frozen series would say, let it go. Is it pride? Let it go. Is it unbelief? Repent. Repent of your sin. Cling to the cross. If you're thinking, look, pastor, it's just not a big deal, Pastor AJ. 
The verse we read in Acts 2 lists it as a command. Once you've repented of your sin and believed in Jesus unto salvation, it should be one of the first commands you follow. Will you do so? Second question. If you have already been baptized, should I do it again? I know for many of you in this room, you either in the past have been baptized as an infant or you still hold to the pedo baptism position. First, I want to give you four things. First, you need to know that we are not going to be practicing pedo baptism at this church. We will dedicate our children to the Lord, which is one of my dear Presbyterian brothers uh, has a habit of saying, um, he says this, he says, a baby dedication is just a baby baptism without the water. The pastor knows it, the parents know it, and most importantly, the baby knows it. We will dedicate our children to the Lord in this church, but we're not going to baptize them. Second, you do not have to agree agree with us on baptism to become a member of this church. You don't. If you still hold the pedo-baptism, you will not be expelled from the table or expelled from membership. This is not a salvation issue. As a former Presbyterian, I feel like I have a great understanding on both these positions on baptism. And honestly, while I lean towards the credo-baptism position, it is not one of those things that I'm theologically 100% certain on. And that's okay. But this is going to be a Credo Baptist Church. Third, I will be getting baptized by immersion this summer for the first time because I have come to believe that's the proper mode of baptism. If you would like to follow this example and be baptized by immersion for the first time, we would love to have you join us. Lastly, I believe this is a personal issue. If you choose not to be baptized by immersion because you feel like your baptism as an infant is sufficient, is sufficient, you will not feel any shame from anyone who is in leadership at this church. Please do not feel any shame. Third, what happens after I've been baptized? This is really important. Um, baptism is not the end of your faith. It is a sign of the beginning of it. Baptism is the door to church membership. One of the things is baptism does, and this is why it's so beautiful, it's another picture, is it not only speaks to your union with Christ, but it speaks to your union with Christ's bride. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian in the New Testament. It doesn't exist. They're always baptized into a body of believers. Baptism is an outward sign of a spiritual, of a spiritual inward, inward reality that links you vertically with the Father, by the Son, through the Spirit, and horizontally with His church. Baptism helps us remind us of who and what the church is. The church is not an organization of spiritual giants. The church is not an organization of spiritual giants. It is a people who know that they are in need of the cleansing, washing of the blood of Jesus. And we know the one who's made them clean. And who have been unleashed unto the world to bring them the same cleansing, to bring the same shalom wherever we go. Fourth, when are we getting baptized? August 1st, 
August 1st, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. We're going to have a baptism service that evening at the community pool. There'll be time for baptism, singing, fellowship, hooting and hollering, food, drinks, and hopefully a lot of hooting and hollering will be there. If you are interested in getting baptism on this date, I ask that you please talk to me or Pastor Jack. Please. We'd love to talk to you more about what that means. And if you are interested in giving your life to Jesus, if today was the day where you heard the gospel clearly explained and for the first time it clicked, you're like, oh, that's what it is. I ask that you would bow your heads with me and we would pray together about the washing of the blood of Christ and that, may, that we may receive the Holy Spirit. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we thank you so much for speaking truth into our lives, giving us a clear example of our need of a rescuer, that we're broken, we are in need of a Savior. And we cannot do it, and we're not designed to do it alone. But you, in your kindness and goodness, sent your son to pursue his bride, his people. And Lord, if we have come to that spot in our lives where we desire to follow Jesus, Lord, we repent of our sin right now. Lord, help us turn from the sin that shackles us. Release us from the sin that binds us. And may we walk in newness of life by receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit this very moment. And Lord, may we see the beauty of what your Son has done. And may we be baptized to reflect that beauty, yes, to the church, but to the world as well. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Your son's name I pray. Amen.